Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive detection dog training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us each week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to James Davis about his work with Padfoot Canine. James is an animal behaviorist, conservation detection dog trainer, and handler, invasive wildlife management consultant, and the host of the Conservation Canine podcast, and is based in Queensland, Australia. Originally working as a gun dog trainer, James started his conservation detection dog journey under Louise Wilson at Conservation Canine Consultancy. He now spends most of his time educating, mentoring, and training the next generation of conservation dog and trainer teams through the Conservation Canine Hel- Camp, which is held throughout Australia in 2022. I'm super excited to get to this interview. It was a lot of fun. It went a little bit long. Um, I could have talked to James all day. Um, but before we get to it, we're going to talk about our weekly science highlights. So this week, we're talking about the paper, Detecting Small and Cryptic Animals by Combining Thermography and a Wildlife Detection Dog, which was written by Denise Karp and published in Nature Scientific Reports. So they were investigating what methods are best for detecting small and cryptic animals. In this case, they are looking at brown hair leverets. This paper is important because successful management and conservation of an endangered species requires an understanding of the species' ecological needs throughout its life cycle and traditional detection methods like spotlighting, line transect counts, box trapping, and nest searches are inadequate for actually finding brown hair leverets. These leverets, um, and leverets are baby bunnies, um, baby hares in this case, um, they're well cam- camouflaged, they're inactive during the day, and their mothers don't really provide protective cover like nests, which could be found. So the researchers um, were looking at thermal imaging camera- cameras, which are suitable because they use emitted heat, um, like infrared radiation, instead of visible light to create an image, making them effective even when the animal is camouflaged or it's dark outside. And these leverets are most active kind of 60 to 100 minutes after sunset. So this study used three methods to detect the brown hair leverets, handheld thermal imaging, airborne thermal imaging, and wildlife detection dog. By the end of the study, they'd found 65 individual leverets from 41 different litters that were te- detected, caught, and radio tagged. Ultimately, the researchers found that the choice of detection method should be based on an area's vegetation characteristics, especially the vegetation's height and density, as thermal imaging devices can be obstructed by vegetation. 
The handheld thermal imaging camera was the most efficient method for searching large areas with low or no vegetation cover in a flat landscape with a dense road network. The thermal drone was best used in areas with up to medium vegetation cover, um, and I didn't write down exactly what they defined as medium vegetation cover, and the detection dog is best used in dense vegetation cover. The detection dog was the least limited by weather conditions like rain, wind, humidity, or sunlight, as well as by vegetation type or rugged terrain. So the dog was kind of the most uh, robust, uh, in my words. <laughs> the time a dog needed to find one litter was lower than that of two thermal imaging devices. So uh, you can kind of say the dog was twice as fast. Um, however, it did say that very young leverets, um, up to about a week, was only detectable within a really short range. Like we're talking the dog was 20 to 50 centimeters away from the dog, as the dog sometimes had difficulty locating the source of scent and sometimes passed within a meter of a leveret. Um, they also noted that an off-leash pet dog and a fox within three to five meters of a pair of leverets without noticing them. So when these leverets are really young, they're incredibly cryptic for our predators and our dogs are predators. Therefore, the detection of leverets requires a dog to thoroughly search an area. So the area covered by a detection dog is relatively small um, because our detection distance is just so, so small. Um, we're really having to cover very closely. Older leverets were easier for the dogs to detect. Um, one of the other big notes is that obviously when these dogs are finding live targets um, and they're we're looking at itty-bitty baby bunnies, um, it is crucial to use a dog with a low and controllable prey drive. The researchers say that combining all three approaches allows detection in all sorts of vegetation cover, habitat types, and weather, which increases the possibility for data collection and results in an unbiased and a more balanced data set. Um, and they suggest that these methods and this combination of methods may apply to other small and cryptic animals. A couple limitations to keep in mind. Um, aerial thermal imaging technology is not yet optimized. Um, these data were collected in 2013 to 2015. So the, the data is probably, or the, uh, the technology with the thermal imaging is probably better already. Um, they also only used one dog in the study, which is really typical in these conservation dog studies. Um, so it limits the ability to generalize these results as performance may be variable between different dogs and different handlers. So with all of that, let's get to our interview with James Davis. Well, thanks for, so much for joining us on the podcast, James. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to uh, be talking to you at last. I know. Yeah, we're, we're finally doing the crossover episode. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you and I have never spoken before, but no. I, I was in the, in the process of planning my podcast when I saw yours come out. And I totally had this moment of like, Oh, God, do I have to like rename my podcast? Like, you know, it's, it's fine. At least nobody can possibly get the two of us confused. No, no, no. And I think it's really, <laughs> really good. Um, you know, nobody just wants to listen to me or just listen to you yeah, all the time. You no, know, it's nice to get a bit, God, of, no. bit of variety in there and, uh, you know, different questions, different styles, different perspectives just makes for mm -hmm. interesting, uh, interesting conversations, more interesting episodes for, for everyone that's listening. So it's a good yeah, yeah, definitely. I've definitely gotten ideas from topics or guests, thanks to yours. Particularly, I loved the format of your New Year's Eve episode. Um, so yeah, you really, see that one. Really I, well I, I'll tell you the story behind that one is that I was because uh -huh. it was our first season last year, so we'd done all year, and I'd got to nineteen episodes, and I went, oh, like that's kind of rattling my OCD a little bit. I need to tidy this mm -hmm, up and get mm -hmm. twenty. What can I do for twenty? Who can I? Who can I rope in, you know, for a 20th episode? But I need it to be, you know, quite a good, you know, somebody sort of, you know, like a really good yeah. episode. Um, and and then I thought, oh, I wonder if I can get a few of these guys back. 
you know, and just actually have them asking each other some questions because, as you know, Kayla, it's you know mm-hmm. it's really hard when you're trying to run these things and you're thinking off the top of your head of questions and you're trying to concentrate on what the guest is saying and you're yeah you're missing stuff and afterwards there's always twenty questions you wish you'd asked and so I thought well mm-hmm. it'd be nice for me to be able to sit back a little bit just let them ask each other some questions and some of these guys know each other pretty well some don't and you know it was really it was really nice that so many of them kind of were able to jump on for that episode so yeah I was quite pleased with that one it was a lot of fun. Hey, I'm Taylor, and I'm the handler for Kepler, a mini Aussie in training for muscle detection work. Before canine conservationists, I didn't even know about all the possibilities with dogs in conservation. Now I've jumped feet first into the training. I wouldn't have been able to without the support I gained from being a part of the podcast Patreon. My favorite support comes from the group calls. I've been able to get alert training help and felt completely welcome even though I'm a complete novice to this kind of training. The group calls also help guide my questions for my one-on-ones with Kayla. The information is invaluable and the community is kind. I hope to see you there. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I'm actually I'm trying to put together a spinoff topic where I've actually um, a spinoff episode where I've got some conservation dog handlers and then some ecologists mm-hmm. um, and then some dog trainers. So actually, people who are kind of on like the full spectrum of whether or not they're involved, and we'll see. It's it, it's gonna be messy, I think, but it should be cool. <laughs> It'll so, be interesting if nothing lives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It may be it may be a lot of chaos. It may. Um, but we'll, we'll see. This is what audio editing is for. So why don't we start out? I don't think I know how you got involved in the field of conservation detection. Where did you, where did you start? So I um, started off, uh, I was training working dogs. So I was training mm-hmm. professional kind of sporting you know, gun dogs. And, mm-hmm. and I always really enjoyed that because I never really liked the trialing side of it that much. You know, I just liked being out there working my dogs. And if I was working a team of dogs, you know, so working a pointer and a retriever and a spaniel at the same time, you know, for their different kind of natural roles, I used to mm-hmm. really love, yeah, you know, that kind of dynamic and, and just that trust that you have to build with the team and the fact that you're not, you know, you're not the most important member of the team. Yeah. Arguably you're the least yeah. important member of the team. And I used to really love that. And I wanted to take that kind of further. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I just didn't want to do that anymore. And so I was looking around for more dog work that I could do. And, and, I, and I looked at various things and I looked at, you know, kind of narcotics stuff and explosive stuff and, and all of that sort of you know, type work. And, you know, while being very fascinating detection disciplines, they're very controlled and contrived, in, in, you know, to mm-hmm. me anyway. Um, you know, and you're, you're, ve- you're very much kind of dictating what the dog's doing, yeah, for, for, for good sort of safety and thoroughness reasons. But it's, you know, it, it's very much a sort of a, a tightly controlled search, which just didn't mm-hmm. really float my boat. And then I went off. And I, um, I, ca- I came across an article about Louise Wilson um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a publication. I thought, oh, that sounds cool. And, you know, she had pictures of her spaniels on the article. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got spaniels. I like that. Um, and so I went and spent a bit of time with her. You know, I did a little bit of training with her and just kind of went, oh, yeah, this is, this is for me. And mm-hmm. I can give sort of probably – yeah, probably 20% of that is credit to the work of conservation detection. 80% of that I've got to credit Louise. It's just her her style and the way she works and the way she trains and the way she interacts with dogs just very much kind of demonstrated to me what I wanted to be and, and do. Basically, you know, gave up the day job and started mm-hmm. doing it. And, and that's where it's all gone 
yeah, from there. Yeah, that's where we are now. Yeah, yeah, very <laughs> cool. And, you know, I think that kind of touches on my next question was going to be, what do you love most about this work? Um, <laughs> and I think I might have an idea of what that's going to be, but I'll let you go ahead and answer the question anyway. Yeah, look, I mean, it changes over time. I, I'm, I'm a little bit of a tinkerbell with my uh, focus, you know, so I'm not somebody mm -hmm. that's... Uh, you know, I, I like to be constantly learning new things, con constantly changing, adapting. I, I get very stale very quick. Mm -hmm. And so what I've really enjoyed about it is obviously, you know, the initial stages of learning and the yeah, and doing the work. Um, and, yeah, for me personally, you know, I've always found the aspect of working with the dog more interesting mm -hmm. than necessarily the conservation angle. I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in conservation. Yeah, it, yeah, it's really, sure. really important, but it's, you know, for me, that wasn't my main motivation. Yeah. You know, and so you spend a lot of time learning that sort of stuff, and, and, and I've learned a lot, you know, through that. And I'm also very fortunate that I do a lot of other kind of dog training stuff as well, you know, pet dogs and this and this, that and the other. So I'm, I'm around dogs all the time, and so, so, so the, mm -hmm. my, my philosophy and the way I approach train, yeah, training kind of evolves the more I learn and the more every dog teaches me, I kind of go, ah, that's something new that I learned that I can apply to the next dog. For me, this, this industry, if we can call it that, is still in its kind of infancy, you know, mm -hmm. and we, the, those of us who are working in it now have the ability and the moral obligation to shape the way that industry is going to run. Like every, every industry works in a certain way. It has its own kind of modus operandi. It has its own, kind of culture, I guess, the way of working. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found when I came into this industry is there's very much two distinct camps, you know. So you've got a camp which includes all, you know, generally all the wonderful people I have on you know, my podcast and, and the people I'm friends with um, who are incredibly generous with their time and knowledge and, and so on. And then there's another camp um, that that really kind of want to you know, erect barriers to entry into the industry. They really want to kind of keep it very enclosed. And, that kind of thing. and I just think that's shit. I mean, on, on genuinely, you know, for me, the conservation dollar needs to be stretched as wide as it can be. You know, so if you've got providers out there who are charging top dollar, you know, and as demand grows, then even though their costs haven't risen, you know, their, their prices are rising, you know, so they're just – you know, they're, they're playing the supply and demand and, and all of that kind of thing. For me, that's not good. And so so that was one of the things I really enjoyed kind of and really felt quite passionately and still do about with this industry is is trying to make sure that the right people or the people that I consider the right people <laughs> are the ones that have got the biggest, loudest voices and are the ones that are shaping how the industry works. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, it's I mean, it's one of the things when I was first starting out with canine conservationists, the organization, I would get um, friends and, you know, even one of my board members, you know, kind of was like, why are you doing this as a nonprofit? <laughs> you know, why this sounds like a business to me. And I was like, yeah, sure, it totally could be. But, you know, one of the things that's that I'm hoping that I can get out of having it structured as a nonprofit is that I can fundraise to then offer myself and my dogs to organizations that maybe couldn't afford us otherwise, because at least that way it opens us up to grants. It opens us up to donations. I'm sure I could convince some people to give me money, even if it wasn't tax deductible, 
but it's harder. <laughs> um, you know, then we're then we're more talking almost business investors, and that kind of changes changes the goal of the organization. And again, I know um, at least here in the U.S., there's there's kind of a variety. It seems like most of the organizations are nonprofits. Um, but you know, that was, it, I think I'm getting better and better at articulating why this thing that absolutely could be a business I'm choosing to structure as a nonprofit. Are you, are you nonprofit or for-profit or I don't know, I guess your tax system is also probably different from ours. Yeah, but broadly speaking, the same principles apply. I mean, no, no, we're, we're I, mean, I mean, I just do the work under my, my other business, which you know, trains all the other you know, the pet dogs and does everything else that we do. Cause we, cause we do a bunch of things. And I've been thinking a lot about whether I should spin that out as a non-profit for the, for the very reasons that you mentioned there. Mm-hmm. And the only, to, be, to be perfectly honest with you, the only reason I haven't to this point is that I cannot see myself sitting down writing grant applications. It's such you know, a nightmare. I just can't see myself doing you it. You don't want you know, so yeah. Unless I can hire somebody to do that, in which case then the conservation dollar is not going where it, where it needs to go. So, right. look, I mean, never say never. That might be the way I have to go in the future because it might be the mm-hmm. right way to go. But for now, I mean, I'm just providing a service at the lowest possible, you know, rate that I can. Um, mm-hmm. And and I'm working for nonprofits, so I'm subcontracting to them. So they can, you know, if they want to do something, they there can you go. go. They've got the grant they writer. The grant. They've got the grant writer. They've got the reputation. They've got all the governance in place to tick mm-hmm. all the boxes of, of the grant funding. Which, you know, yeah. obviously I could do, but I just look at myself and go, nah, don't like the sound of that yeah. one little well, bit. Well, it's so, even I'm I'm a good writer. Um, I made a living as a freelance writer for a long time. I enjoy writing. I don't have time. So one of the, one of the things, you know, and maybe this will work for you. This has worked really well for me with the podcast. Um, I did a big call for volunteers around mid-year last year and i've got several volunteers who um have a ton of grant writing experience that are actually helping me with a lot of that they're donating their time so it's it's almost this like catch-22 where it's like (laughs) because i'm a nonprofit, i'm able to attract these volunteers who are able to help me with the grant writing which helps me be a non-profit yes it's it's, it's a a lot of help yes the virtual circle there and i think that's really good i think Uh i think i'm just you know getting probably partly hung up at the moment on the fact that I'm so averse to uh, bureaucracy as a person. Yeah. You know, I'm just looking at that yeah. game, and it, the whole thing sends shivers down my spine and, and sets a queasy tone to my stomach whenever I think about it. <laughs> and I just kind of go, yeah. oh, is that, is that the place for me in the industry? Maybe not. Maybe I should. That's how fo- I feel when I look at government contract applications. Yeah. I'm just like, oh God, please no. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and that's yeah. the thing, man. Maybe yeah. I should just focus on doing the best dog and team training that I can do. Yeah. But I may change my mind tomorrow. Who knows? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Never say never. I, I've definitely had periods of time where I'm just like, darn it. Why didn't I just make this a branch of journey dog training and do what you've done with Padfoot? Mm. Um, Especially now it's tax season and I'm just looking (laughs) at like, uh, it's just, it's so much, uh, you know, it's such a silly thing to be like, God, I wish I'd structured things differently just because my taxes would be simpler. Well, it's, but, it's, I mean, I guess the way I look at it at the moment anyway, is that Padfoot or the rest of the Padfoot business is subsidized in the conservation dog work. 
Yeah. And so you've mentioned the camps and that was one of the biggest things that I'd love to talk to you about as far as kind of the, the mentoring, what, um, you know, this is such a, this is such a ridiculously broad question that this is basically the question we're going to dive into for a good chunk of the episode. What is some of the advice that you would give for someone jumping into the industry or hoping to jump into the industry, especially like, obviously they should go to your camps, but let's say you don't have a camp coming up. Let's say they, you know, Australia closes down again with COVID restrictions, whatever it is. Um, for most of my listeners are here in the US. Not all, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I guess the first piece of advice I give everyone is be a, be realistic about your expectations. We, we see a lot of people that kind of go, right, I want to do a course and I want to get into this industry and I want to make a living out of it. And I don't want to necessarily make a really, really big living, but I want to be able to make a living. And you kind of got to go, mm, that's hard. So I suppose the first piece of advice is just make sure that you're not reliant on it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's, you actually hit on a, an interesting distinction that I think people may not realize that this is kind of the question they should be asking, because I feel like I get this inquiry of how do I learn how to do this job? And it's like, okay, that, that I can kind of teach you how to do. Yeah. yeah. You know? Obviously, there there are parts of this job that I you know I can't teach you to be tough enough in the field. Like that's that's part of it's on you. Part of the dog sense is really hard to teach. Yeah, yeah. But I think most of that stuff we can teach. You know, you and I come more from a training background, I think, than is actually typical in this field. So I feel pretty confident. Like I, it's been my job to teach hundreds and hundreds of people how to train dogs. I think I can teach someone how to handle a conservation dog. Uh, that makes me sound cockier than I am, but you know, like there are teachable skills, but then I think the question that people maybe don't ask, or maybe they're asking without asking is how do you actually get a job Mm. in this field? And that is a much, much harder thing to answer. You know, that is the sort of thing where it's like, I mean, here in the U S yeah, unless you're lucky enough to manage to get hired by one of these big full-time organizations, um, at best, you're doing seasonal like wind farm work with an organization like West, yeah. um, which was great. I'm really glad I did it. I may go back to them, or or you're on your own, kind of doing what I'm doing. And you know, as you and I have both talked about, our other dog training businesses are the things that sustain us financially, so that we can do this. Yeah, I do make money. I do charge money for my services, but it's not enough. And I also I live in a van. I don't pay rent. No. <laughs> Like I'm saying 500 to a thousand dollars a month, at least just, you know, that allows me to continue doing this line of work because I just don't have that much overhead. I think it's a very interesting point you raise there though. And I wonder why it is, is that, yeah, if you're getting more inquiries about how do I learn to do this and I'm getting more inquiries about how do I make a living out of this? I don't know if that's a, if that's a cultural yeah. difference um, <laughs> or yeah. You know, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it you know, from that perspective before. I wonder if I'm getting people who are just a step earlier in their process. Maybe. I mean, maybe. Um, and maybe it's because I do the camps. Maybe they kind of go, oh, I've already answered mm-hmm. that question because I'm calling up. Right. Sort of off the back of yeah. hearing about the camps, you know, and then. Exactly. Yeah. They're like, okay, so obviously uh, step one to learn how to do the job is to do the camp. Step two, how do I get paid? Yeah. That's yeah, the question that yeah, you're getting yeah, separately. I, and I think I'm getting that, that step one where they're yeah. like, okay, before I worry about getting paid, I need to figure out how to do it. And that's, yeah. I guess that that's a reasonable way to go. It might be. I mean, I mean, I guess I'm getting the return on investment question. You know, they're, they're looking at the camp and mm-hmm. they're kind of going, right, you know, how long is it going to take me to get my money back? 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And so, you know, do you have like books or online courses or anything you recommend, especially if say you get someone who is maybe an undergrad uh, in uni and they haven't, you know, they don't even have, they don't have a degree in biology yet. They maybe haven't owned a dog yet. Do you have anything that you're just kind of like, Hey, you're probably not even ready for camp yet. Here are some of the things to start thinking about. Not really. I mean, we generally take people at camp because I'm, I'm an incredibly unstructured individual, um, which plays to uh-huh. my advantage in this sense, in that I can teach each each individual at the camp. And that's why in the camp we don't have a lot of structured, you know, right now, this morning, we're going to talk about, you know, faction theory or, or stuff sure. like that. I don't do mm-hmm. much kind of just sit down and listen to me guys, you know, type stuff in the camp. It's more, let's get on with it. Here's a whiteboard. If you've got any questions during the day you want to discuss later on, write them on the whiteboard. And as we sit around the camp oh, cool. at night, you know, then we'll talk all that stuff out. And this is one of the main reasons for starting the podcast, actually. Though. Just, you know, just go and listen to this stuff because this is the best way to get the knowledge out of the top people, you know, in the industry. Um, with the camp, you know, just because I recognize that not everyone is unstructured like me. A lot of people like a bit of a protocol to follow. Um, we also give them a copy of Paul Bunker's book, you know, Imprint Your Dog in 15 Days. Sure. But they get that because uh-huh. that's, so far as I'm concerned, it's the best resource out there. It's the most kind of uh, all-encompassing or most comprehensive but quick, you know, step-by-step yeah. process to doing it so i I mean i believe anyone could pick up that book and imprint their dog on odor you know Mm -hmm. so in terms of people who like that style then they've got that resource yeah yeah i know back when i was at working dogs for conservation um one of the one of the parts of my job was just fielding all of those intake emails because i was one of the i was their outreach person and one of the things that we would do because we'd get people asking like oh my gosh do you do internships blah 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 um we would say um they had to read the cadaver dog handbook was the book that we recommended and then come back to us. And, you know, one of the things, part of it was a bit of homework as a little bit of a test because 80% of people we'd never heard from again. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, if I can't get you to read my, read a book, I don't know. I don't know if I really want to hire you as an intern. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, I think that's the, the that's the beauty of the camp format really. Cause it means I get to know these yeah. guys, you know, and we're sitting around and, yeah. and, I, and I can have those conversations after sort of day two, day three, I can have those conversations with them and I can kind of go, look, I'm not entirely sure this aspect of the, of the job is going to be right for you. Yeah. You know, for these reasons, you know, but you could potentially be good, be really good at this bit, you know, because of what I've seen mm-hmm. so far. Well, and so much of it is learning on the job too. Um, you know, unless it's a target that you've already worked on or that a lot of other people have worked on. Sometimes I was just talking to um, a prospective partner about a project where, you know, nobody's worked on this species before. And like, yes, other dog teams have worked on similar species. So, you know, there's stuff we can learn from them, but you know, it's just, it's just going to be a, it's going to be a learning experience for the first season. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel like it, it varies from project to project, kind of how much I end up relying on that background in biology. There are definitely times, especially in like the outreach and communication side, where it's nice to be able to talk the talk. Um, and I think it's useful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's also useful having a, having a good knowledge of your target, but you don't necessarily, exactly, need, you don't necessarily yeah. need a tertiary background in it to do that. You know, you just got to have the interest. You know, so, so if, if you're yeah. coming, if you're searching for scat from a particular species, then it, as part of your professionalism, I'd argue you'd want to 
bone up on the behavioral ecology of that particular species exactly in area, yeah. and so on I mean, but, but that's just professionalism yeah we were just um for our patreon learning club we just did the um we read, oh gosh, it's um, a paper da- by DiMatteo um, and Davenport and a couple of the other, you know, big U.S. ladies in the field. And um, they, the, pa- the paper is something along the lines of how the behavior of non-target species affects perception of detection dog accuracy. And um, one of the things they found in there was, you know, they're looking at like how coprophagy can affect things and all of that, um, you know, urine marking and all of all of these really interesting questions. And it was definitely one of those papers that as you're reading it, you're like, oh, gosh, yeah, this is why it matters to know what the behavior of your species is and potentially the behavior of these other species. Because they were specifically looking at um, coyotes, urine marking and eating puma scat. So, you know, and I think one of the other questions, um, I know I get a lot of people asking, like, should I sign up for a nose work class? Um, what do you, I usually say, go for it. It, it can't hurt. Um, well, I normally say no. Um, and oh, this, interesting. Uh, and this, okay. may, this may come back to my style of training, but I've got mm-hmm. a, I've got a very, very much a belief that the dogs in this field need to be as wild and un- unconstrained and uncontrolled as possible to, to do the job right, you know? And that may come from, you know, from the way I like to work, but I want the dogs to mm-hmm. really, I mean, if my dog never looks to me for guidance during a search, just gets on, does his job independently, comes up the result, you know, the only thing I've got to do is pay him, you know, mm-hmm. then, then, then I think that was a good day's work. The best dogs I've seen in the conservation dog world are the ones that would not do well at that stuff at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I, so I started out in nose work and it was actually the, my very first nose work class was because I, I was on the wait list to get into an agility class. Um, <laughs> that was what I wanted to do. I want to do the, the sexy, flashy sport. Yeah, and yeah. then I got stuck in nose work and was like, what is, oh my God, I was so bored in class. I kind of hated it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it did give me like a good background in like learning how to read my dog, a little bit about odor dynamics, you know, and I'm sure, I mean, the other, the thing I do caution people about with nose work classes is just how much it's going to vary as far as how, what the quality of your instruction is. I could see, I know I've seen nose work classes advertised from like narcotics canine handlers where it's like, Ooh, you're probably really up the dog's butt. Um, (laughs) in, in that handling style, I wouldn't necessarily want that. But as far as, you know, priming on some odor dynamics and reading your dog's body language and stuff, I, I definitely found it helpful as a place to start, but it didn't translate over the way that I think a lot of people probably hope. I think just, I mean, just to be clear on that, I mean, I, I wouldn't turn somebody away who has been doing that. In fact, a, a, <laughs> sure. lot, a lot of people in the camps come from that background and it's a good thing. But, if yeah. they, but it, I wouldn't say to somebody that if you want to get into conservation detection, that is a logical pathway place to start yeah i've heard you talk about the the wildness thing before and i've always kind of wanted to to ask a little bit about that and i think one of the things i'm hitting on and this is something else we were already going to talk about is breed selection because i live with border collies so my dogs are naturally speaking much more um they they want that input they want that direction and you work with spaniels which are kind of on the opposite end of search independence so i think that i think now that it's all fitting for me a little bit more i think i understand a little bit more what you mean when you say that you don't you you want them to be really wild um and it sounds like it's a little bit of handler preference 
Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it absolutely suits mm-hmm. me, but I think people have to tap into that. You, you have to recognize you know, what totally. you are and train your way. And that's one of the big messages at camp is that, you know, I'm not saying you've got to train this way or that way. You know, you, you've got to find a trainer that suits your style of training because my style, my style of training will suit 50% of people. You know, and then a then a much more structured style of training. You know, we'll suit the other. Yeah, guys. like I like my dogs to be really responsive. And there's no there's no right or wrong in that. <laughs> yeah. So far as I'm concerned, it's you know if the dog does the job. Yeah. The dog, uh-huh. the dog does the job. Yeah, and one thing I know I've noticed, and I've really noticed this back when I was at Working Dogs for Conservation, and they had that a couple border collies on staff as well as mine, um, and you know working with a variety of handlers as well is that particularly with these really in-tune herding dogs, your handling mechanics just matter so much. And I'm not saying that as like, oh, people who handle herding dogs are like better than people who handle spaniels. Of course not. But um, you have to be, especially if you know where the hide is, if you know where the target is when you're training, in my experience, the border collies are more likely to notice if your shoulders are oriented towards yeah. the hide <laughs> versus the labs are just like, woo, I'm doing my thing. You know, they've got, they're, they're searching independently, which is lovely. That's exactly what we want. So I think, you know, when you're training new handlers, I don't always like training new handlers with these really uh, human focused dogs. Yeah. Yeah. We probably have to wrap up here, but briefly, I would love to touch a little bit on, um, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about field safety and I'm particularly, I'm snake obsessed right now because the two projects I'm looking at are both in snaky parts of the world. One um, is in Ecuador and one's in Kenya. Um, So what, you know, I mean, Australia is notorious for being horrendous for snakes. What are some of the things that you do to keep your dog safe? So so I actually did this as part of my research for my post-grad work. So so I have looked into this a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, And generally speaking, obviously aversion treatment is used for snake avoidance around the world. That's the the recognized Mm -hmm. method, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. Throw the snake, fry the dog. Show the snake, fry the dog, you know. Rinse and repeat a few times, and mm-hmm. then the dog will kind of go, shit, no, I'm not going anywhere near that. Um, I never liked that um, yeah. because it never gave the dog a choice. Well, the way we do it over here is we start off, you know, using basically we use live snakes. I don't think it's possible to do it without live snakes. So we have them, you know, the venomous ones, we have them enclosed in clear containers, but with a grill at one end. We just basically take the dog around, and we, and we watch them for their behavior, and we address it mm-hmm. you know depending on what it is so if a dog is uncertain around a snake and sort of you know, it'll stop there and, and stand and, and and i'll wait and then if it takes a step forward then it'll get a, a very very gentle leash correction in the first round you know just a no mm-hmm. if it takes a step backwards it gets reinforced you know, so again, we're, so we're just mm-hmm. sort of setting the dog up for success, saying, "This, my friend, is a snake. You can look at it, you can see it move, you can smell it. You know, the the correct behaviour in the presence yeah. of a snake is to do this, and then gradually over four kind of hour long sessions of the, we call it snake avoidance rather than snake aversion. Um, uh, we uh-huh. we we basically up the ante for the right and wrong decision making. Yeah, well, and I know both of my dogs have shown natural aversion yeah. to snakes yeah. when we've had the opportunity for them. And to so run you, into and so you reinforce that, and it's one of those things where dogs are not stupid. You know, like if you've taught them what's what, you know, and if you've exposed them to snakes and you know what their behaviour is, and then you've addressed that behaviour, either reinforced it or corrected it, then you're giving them a clear indication, and it just. Mm-hmm. 
the reality is with snakes, the dog will know it's there before you do, you know, and, and most of the time yeah. they come across a snake, you're nowhere nearby. So there's absolutely no point you having any role in that decision-making process. The thing that always freaks me out thinking about snakes. Um, so, so far I primarily worked in rattlesnake country and it's mostly been open and I've always felt pretty comfortable with that. Um, but um, are the situations in which I don't, feel confident my dog is going to be able to perceive the snake before it's a problem. And that's, that's again, where it, like it's, you know, then it's just situational awareness, knowing what the species behavior is likely to be. And, and, and there's not know, much you can do about doing that. the best you can to there's avoid. Really not much you can do about it. You, yeah. you can't say to your dog, a snake is going to be there because chances are, I mean, like nine times out of 10, if the snake hears you come, you know, here's you coming, it'll bugger off anyway. Yeah. So, so you've got to be very unfortunate yeah. and, Really, all you can do is say to your dog, "If you see a snake, yeah, this is—it's a snake. Don't go after it. You know, if you smell a snake, mm-hmm. avoid it. Stuff happens. You can prepare for it. You can prepare for it as best you can. You mm-hmm. can set them up for success as best you can. You can't control the situation. Yeah. <laughs> what a note to end <laughs> things on. Is there anything that you wanted to circle back to or bring up um, before we wrapped up? Here? No, no, not at all. Really, just um, you know, it's been great. Yeah, being invited on your show. I'm yeah. a big fan, so it's uh, it's been really good to come on here and have a chat. It's very nice, very nice to yeah. meet you finally. And uh, yeah, yeah, good to finally meet yeah, you too. And, um, glad we can make the time zones happen. Um, you know, with with your podcast, our podcast, and so on. You know, hopefully, hopefully the uh, the the industry has got some pretty good resources there to draw on to help them. I mean, we've got we've got what is this like eight hours a week of continue or eight hours a month of continuing education that was not happening two exactly. years ago. So yeah. certainly better than when we, you and I were breaking yeah, into the definitely. field. Absolutely right. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much. Um, where can people find you? Online? Uh, yeah. So they can find us at padfoot.com.au or on Facebook. Um, they can find us at the conservation canine camp on Facebook. Um, but I'll send you some links to put up in the show notes anyway. Or we're on, okay, we're on Instagram, yep. Padfoot AU, Padfoot Dogs. We've got so much social media and I'm useless at all of it. So, <laughs> Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just drop all yeah, the yeah. links and that's always easier anyway. I, I'm sure most of our listeners are either walking the dog or driving right now. So either way, they're no, not no, writing let's stuff down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're walking the dog, maybe, but please not while you're driving. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, uh, James. Nice it was great to have you on. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. Um, and as always, we've got a couple more ideas for those sorts of things coming from this podcast. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.